RTI International's Justice Practice Area presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In Episode 3 of our National Case Close Project, Supporting Best Practices in Investigation Season, Just Science sat down with Lamar Fial, Assistant United States Attorney for the District of South Carolina, Rob Lang, Assistant United States Attorney for the Middle District of North Carolina, and John Wilkinson, Attorney Advisor at Equitas, to discuss how state, local, and federal prosecutors' offices can collaborate with law enforcement to improve case outcomes. While some law enforcement officers may have a go-to contact in their state or local prosecutor's office, more consistent collaboration and information-sharing practices can help bring violent crime offenders to justice. For example, many prosecutors work with law enforcement to better utilize the National Integrated Ballistic Information Network, leads and other crime intelligence to supplement case evidence. Listen along as Lamar, Rob, and John describe their unique experiences building systems of communication between law enforcement and prosecutors, the evolving role of crime gun intelligence in building a case, and improving victim and witness case cooperation. This episode is funded by the U.S. Department of Justice, Bureau of Justice Assistance. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Here are your hosts, Julia Brinton and John Wilkinson. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Julia Brinton, with the National Case Closed Project, a program of the Bureau of Justice Assistance. Here to join me as co-host is John Wilkinson. John, can you give our listeners a little background about yourself? Yeah. So I'm an attorney advisor with Equitas. Uh, Equitas is a resource for state and local prosecutors on violent crime, particularly violence against women crime but all violent crime. And so we uh, provide assistance, whatever folks need. State and local prosecutors are super busy, so we're happy to do anything we can to support them through research, webinars, learned articles, things like that in the areas of violent crime. Uh, I work with RTI on a number of initiatives, including the National Case Close Project. Prior to joining Equitas, I was an assistant Commonwealth attorney in Fredericksburg, Virginia. So I tried everything from traffic offenses to first degree murder, but I also prosecuted a lot of drug crime, a lot of gun crime, a lot of domestic violence, domestic violence homicide. I also tried sexual violence and I was on our sexual assault response team. And um, being on the sexual assault response team really opened my eyes to how collaboration with key partners is critical in solving a lot of these crimes or improving our response to a lot of these crimes and uh, how we measure success. We can do a lot. A guilty verdict isn't the only measure of success. There are other things we can do to improve the response and improve victims' uh, recovery from crimes and prevention, things like that. Prior to that, I was a public defender, sort of learned the system from both sides. And being a a public defender, I think, really helped me as a prosecutor because it helped me understand these crimes and where people are coming from uh, a little more. Thanks, John. On today's episode, we will discuss the importance of collaboration among law enforcement and prosecutors, as well as the critical role each play in improving case outcomes for both fatal and non-fatal shootings. Here to guide us in this discussion is Rob Lang, Assistant U.S. Attorney at U.S. Attorney's Office, MDNC, and Lamar File. Assistant U.S. Attorney, District of South Carolina. Welcome, Rob and Lamar. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Hello. Glad to be here. Good to be here. 
All right, Rob, we're going to start with you. Can you talk a little bit about your background? I graduated law school from Wake Forest in 1984. I did private practice for five years, and then I went to the DA's office in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, worked for about seven and a half years, tried about 115 jury cases uh, all across the board, uh, ended up trying a bunch of murder cases and death penalty cases, came to the U.S. Attorney's Office in 97. I just celebrated my 26th year. I've tried over 100 cases in federal court, primarily uh, violent crime, Hobbs Act robberies, which are retail robberies, uh, that uh, establishments that deal in commerce. I've tried some big uh, drug conspiracies, those types of things. Uh, but since PSN, Project Safe Neighborhoods, has come in, in in 2001, I've been the Project Safe Neighborhoods coordinator for our district in the Middle District of North Carolina. And for the past four or five years, I've not been prosecuting as many cases. I've been more involved in training and working on building uh, partnerships with local agencies, with our police, sheriff's offices, local prosecutors, state probation, adult and juvenile, to try to figure out uh, how we can better collaborate to reduce violent crime. I've been involved in quite a number of uh, work with the High Point Police Department and others with focused deterrence policing and work with David Kennedy as he developed a number of replications of his Boston Gun Project and uh, have been involved in some unbelievable partnerships that have reduced violent crime in 50, 60, 65 percent over time. Some of those numbers have still held even over the past few years. So uh, collaborating with the local law enforcement and the local prosecutors is right in my lane and and uh, what excites me. I love hearing that. What a amazing background that you bring to the table. Lamar, can you talk a little bit about your background? Yes, I've been prosecuting since the fall of 2014. I started at the Richland County Solicitor's Office in Columbia, South Carolina. Started like most prosecutors do, doing sort of a range of things, assaults, uh, auto breaking, shopliftings. After about three years, I started moving into violent crimes. So I started prosecuting murders, armed robbery, sexual assaults. While I was there, I did about 17, 18 jury trials over the course of about seven years. Left there, went to the city of Columbia city attorney's office, and I was a special assistant U.S. attorney in the District of South Carolina. I did that for a year. While I was there in that capacity, I prosecuted somewhere around 25 uh, different individuals that were of interest to the city because of their nexus to firearms and violence. And after about a year, I joined the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of South Carolina as an assistant U.S. Attorney, um, and I'm in that capacity now. Lamar, at one point, you were a special assistant U.S. Attorney dedicated to prosecuting gun cases. Did you find that to be a successful strategy? I did. I think it is a good situation for both uh, the organization and the U.S. Attorney's Office. The city of Columbia had a prosecutor embedded at the U.S. Attorney's Office that was dedicated to crimes originating out of the city. I would meet frequently with patrol officers, command staff, other people in CPD, which is City of Columbia Police Department and their leadership regularly to sort of recognize who the drivers of violent crime in the area was were, as I should say, and it allowed us to focus our attention on those people. Of course, dealing with violent crime is also a big initiative of uh, U.S. attorneys' offices across the nation. So it became just a good partnership between the city and the U.S. attorney's office, and I think it was very fruitful. I think both parties got value out of it. That's a great strategy, Lamar. So interesting to 
become that force multiplier, both for your office and for the U.S. Attorney's Office. Rob, when I met you a few months ago, one of the things that amazed me was how well you knew all the players in your jurisdiction, particularly individual police officers. So is that just from working with everyone for a long time, or was there some intentionality to that? Uh, Does it help improve case outcomes or improve some of the strategies that you try and employ? Some of it is from being around for a long time in the same general area. However, everything is intentional. As Homicide and has CID, uh, Criminal Investigation Division groups, they rotate their detectives out. And so there's a new face coming in. So it is very intentional to make sure that you identify uh, who the new players are and who new boots on the ground that are that are doing the legwork to investigate the, the serious and violent crime cases. So my knowledge of, of, of many of the of those go-to people in the departments is very intentional because that intentionality leads to developing a relationship. And once I develop a relationship with those individuals, I can learn how their unit works. I can learn uh, what resources they have available. And really, we can learn how to build that team uh, effort. So, you know, the understanding of how that system works is critical to good case outcomes and to, to improving process, you know, as you do the case in front of you, improving the process and improving the investigation for the next case. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, one of the things across the National Case Close Project uh, that we've heard is a lot of homicide detectives mention that they have a go-to person in the prosecutor's office or in the U.S. Attorney's office, the prosecutor that they know or they prefer or they trust somehow. How important is it to have a consistent response from an office on these crimes? I think it's very important, but I mean, obviously you want to build a system in all the prosecutor's offices so that you can respond in in a consistent way to the law enforcement officers. In our office, in the U.S. Attorney's Office, we assign one uh, assistant U.S. attorney to each of the counties of the 24 counties in the district and for violent crime only, not for sex offenses, not for human trafficking, not for white collar, but for violent crime only, that one AUSA is the point of contact. And so I'm around the district a lot. Somebody will say, hey, I got this case and blah, blah. And I'll forward that on to that particular AUSA or our criminal chief will do the same so that there is some consistency so that you can develop those relationships and and the communication between the district attorney's office so they know what we're up to and with the local investigators and sometimes a referral to a federal agency, you know, to maybe polish the rock a little bit. Yeah. So that's interesting. Lamar, uh, have you had that experience as well? I have. And I've noticed that those relationships are sometimes forged in sort of trial and getting prepared for trial and actually trying a case. And you try a case with an investigator that's worked really hard on that case. And you can really see sort of the barriers that come with trial, barriers like getting witnesses to cooperate, getting certain items of evidence in. And when you and an investigator go through that process together, then they continue to call you uh, as long as they can see that you've done good work and you can have a working relationship. The other way those things are forged Instead of just going where the officers are, so there are sort of gang organizations, uh, various violent crime organizations, almost every command staff or a patrol di- division within an area has morning meetings, weekly meetings, bi-weekly meetings, getting prosecutors to attend those meetings and just getting some FaceTime and saying, hey, I'm here to assist you in whatever capacity I can as a state and local prosecutor 
or as a federal prosecutor, you forge those relationships and get those lines of communications going. That's how it starts. And then, you know, different agencies and different officers will have prosecutors that they know that they can reach out to and get a question answered or an issue resolved. Yeah. I uh, I don't know if either of you have experienced feeling like being the go-to person is adding a lot to your plate, but you're also getting a lot done. And then I know, Rob, you were talking about you make sure that the information gets to the right people, could be multiple parties, but it sounds like that's a good working strategy to get to know the officers, work on the cases with them and attend the meetings that they're at. I agree 100% with Lamar. You forge these relationships initially in trial prep or in a big case uh, when there's a lot of pressure. And those those things carry on, but they lead to the process improvements. You know, and, and when people call you, you can give, you know, after a little bit of time, this stuff repeats over and over. You can give good counsel because you've already had that case. You already know what the outcome is going to be if you do X and Y. And when you've developed a relationship with a particular detective, you know, he says, hey, if you do what he says, you're going to get a good result. You know, over time, you know, you, while you're investigating your cases and focusing on the high value targets and whatnot, you know, you're also building knowledge and improving relationships and improving the way the police do business so that both the state and federal prosecutors in any case benefit from down the road. And so you may not even have a relationship in the next case with that investigator, but because he's riding around in a car with a guy you have, you get the credibility from the other detective and he he listens to what you say. And and so you can move forward. I agree with that completely, Ross. And another thing is you get a relationship where the investigator already knows the questions you're going to ask. And so they just resolve them before they give the case to you. They say, you know, if a witness said they saw something, and I haven't interviewed that witness yet. I know if I give Lamar this case, he's going to ask me, well, have you interviewed that witness? And so they just go ahead and do it. Not only relationship, but it makes things more efficient because there's less back and forth. Once you get a case, you get a more uh, finalized product from the investigators. And I think those relationships make it easier to argue to a jury. I, I never ask a jury to find the defendant guilty. My whole inference is that building a crescendo to the end of the trial, that what these fine officers did in the middle of the night while you were in bed, what they did and the person they brought before you is the person that we've brought before you and just affirming all their actions and asking them to speak the truth. And so when you develop those relationships with them and you believe in them, you vetted them, you know they're trustworthy, you know they dot their I's and cross their T's, jurors sense that. The court senses that. The way you present yourself and that gives great power in the way a jury reads your belief in the case. And uh, that's based on having a good, strong relationship. Uh, so great discussion. All right. So you guys have built relationships with your officers uh, and your investigators. Uh, do you spend time talking with them about what kind of evidence you need to charge these cases, some of these difficult cases, particularly fatal and non-fatal shootings, and what you need to win a case? Why do you have those conversations if you do? And what does it look like? Start with you, Lamar. So yes, those conversations are always ongoing. And we have conversations about the strength of cases as they exist and also the best venue uh, to prosecute those cases in. I think a good working relationship, like you said, an officer talks to you about a case, let's say it's a non-fatal shooting, and they say, well, no one around that area wants to talk to us. We know someone saw something because we watch the surveillance, we see these people around, but no one will tell us what happened. And so- you can begin a dialogue. You can talk about other avenues of investigation, like 
surveillance from the you know four to five blocks surrounding the incident? Can you tell who was coming, who was going? I canvassed the entire area for surveillance footage at somebody's house. There's a lot of ring camera footage. We have awesome uh, crime analysts in the city of Columbia, especially on this federal and state level, who can monitor what people are saying on social media and maybe try to get evidence that way. And so it just starts a dialogue as far as who can you identify that was there? Can you narrow it down to a time and location? And what can we do outside of relying on people? Can we rely on technology to try to get us closer to where we need to be? And when it comes to people, uh, how can we forge a relationship to allow them to know that we're working to make their community safer, not just to put one person behind bars, that we're there uh, for their benefit as well, not just as a means to an end to prosecute this one case, and sort of establishing that relationship. And that's a long-term relationship to build with the community. So you can't just show up in the community and say, hey, talk to me. You know, you have to build that relationship. So relationship building with community is one avenue, but also just when you have a, a prosecutor and a law enforcement agent in the room at the same time talking about the case, those two perspectives just allow us to make the case better. And I'm thinking, what evidence would I like to prosecute this case? And that might trigger the law enforcement officer to say, you know what, I didn't think about that. Here's what I could also do. Or I know someone who specializes in that, that could help uh, get that done. So I just think the communication just makes the case better at the end of the day. Rob, any thoughts on that about how you talk with officers about these cases? Constant training, roll call, regular uh, scheduled training. We always try to engage our state colleagues to do joint training, to show the partnership. I've done rookie schools at the Winston-Salem Police Department for 25 years. I've done every rookie school and do about a four-hour welcome to federal court, what it takes to do a gun case, why we're asking for this, why the evidence needs to be collected, all those types of things. Also do a lot of BLET at our community colleges around. But what our primary training mechanism is our group and case screening mechanism where we discuss the cases and we bring the actual officer. In our larger urban areas, still about 50% of the guns that are being seized on the street are seized in vehicle stops. And so, you know, that basis for the stop, their basis for the search, and then proving the constructive possession of the firearm uh, are just issues that occur over and over and over and over. And we talk about those cases and these young officers, because, you know, in the last five, 10 years, what are getting younger and they're turning over quicker. We talk about those issues all the time. And because these scenarios repeat over and over, there's only so many places you can stuff the gun, you know, in the console, in the glove, in the trunk, in your pocket, underneath the seat, all those things we talk about, the positioning of the firearm, any kind of movements, all documenting all those things. Body cam makes it easier to document better. But we're improving process while we're reviewing the cases. So all these other young officers are hearing the reviews of all these other types of cases. What do we ask for when there's a throwdown or a foot chase? What do we ask for when there's a throw out in a vehicle chase? All those things that need to be documented in a timely fashion. We talk constantly about the things that you have to do at the time of the arrest, at the time of contact uh, between law enforcement uh, and the suspect. You know, you got to document the position of the gun. You've got to document his statements. There's things that can't be done later. Running his record, getting the DMV registration for his car, talking to his girlfriend, listening to his jail calls, running his phone, all that stuff can be done later. But there's three or four things that need to be done at the time. And that's what we train on 
and we do that. And we've learned we absolutely require in these type of meetings that there's no finger pointing. It's all constructive criticism. We take the hit when we lose a case. And we always in these meetings talk about the case we just finished, how we got such a great result because of the strong work from this young officer out there. So that whole piece and that whole process and information sharing and patting each other on the back and trying to constantly improve is really a big piece of getting better. And especially nowadays with understaffed people and tired officers, and we got to do more with with less. And so we have to make sure those cases are made and, and made in a way that we can prosecute them. You can win them. You've talked a lot about the relationship and the communication and uh, what you're doing on the front end, talking with officers and some training. Do you do anything on the back end of your cases? You, you're winning most of your cases. And I, I think sometimes when we have a win, we just move on. But is it helpful to point out things that were super successful? And then if you lose a case, do you do a what they might call in the military, a hot wash, go over the case, what we could have done differently? You made a good point, Rob, about not pointing fingers of blame. But do you talk after the cases are over? Well, you know, a prosecutor, he's got two things on his mind. The one case he just tried and the one he's got in front of him. You know, the suppression issue that's right in front of you is the most important thing. And it affects everybody because we have to compartmentalize and we have to be able to give 100 percent focus to the exclusion of our families and our friends and our golf game and everything else to get through this next trial. So it's amazing how much you can remember detail. When you see that fact scenario the next time, I do a breakdown after all jury trials of what I thought went right and what I thought went wrong, what I thought could be better. And typically I take out my lead agent or my lead investigator out to lunch when we're done and we talk about it. And I always, before my final summation, I ask my officer, what are the four or five most important points you think are in that? And I've, I've missed a few sometimes. I've missed something that's really important because they've lived this thing uh, longer. So a breakdown and improving, always wanting to get better, always listening to the questions the jury has about an element based on a particular fact scenario. If you have a co-defendant testimony, if you don't have much corroboration, what are their questions? Who are they having problems with? So that the next time you have that fact scenario, you can try to shut those doors or those defenses as you move through the case. So yes, 100%. I agree. One thing I always did, we tried so many cases in state court. Like Rob said, um, by the time I left, I think I had prosecuted a couple thousand different warrants, a couple hundred different defendants. And you can't prosecute that many cases and try that many cases without without losing some, me personally, and then as an office. So what I would always do after any case that I lost or that was lost in the office if I knew someone that knew someone that was on the jury, I would always reach out to that person. I know some people just like to move on, but I always thought that is a good way to improve. And so um, after a trial was lost, I would always reach out to the juror, ask them what their thoughts were, what evidence could have done better, how the presentation could have been better. Was the evidence organized clearly? Sometimes they would say maybe it was a little confusing and you know, you guys have the burden of proof. Sometimes they would say, I felt that the person was guilty, but just not necessarily guilty of what y'all charged them with, right? Like they were guilty of something, right? And so you get a good sense of what you can do better from a presentation standpoint, and also an evidence standpoint. And also sometimes they said, we just didn't believe the witness you put on the stand. There's nothing you can do about that except learn for later that, you know, that type of witness was not credible no matter how you tried to rehabilitate them. So I always think 
after trials, you try to think of things you could have done better as a prosecutor, evidence you could have presented better. And a lot of times, officers that testify, I always appreciate this, would reach out to me and say, hey, how do you think I did? What could I have done better? One of the things that, that the benefit that federal court has over state court, in North Carolina, there is no mechanism to compel a person to come before a grand jury and to provide information. You can't grant them immunity uh, and things of that nature. In federal court, if I got a one witness case and that witness is a very difficult witness, I can bring him before the grand jury and I get to sit in there and listen, I'll wait. I won't do an early grand jury in January when they've impaneled a new one. I'll wait till they've seen some more cases and they got a little bit more experience and are comfortable in asking questions and put my person up there, impeach them, talk about all the things they've done, their criminal history, bring it all out, and then listen to the questions from the grand jurors and to see whether they believe them. And it, because if that's all I got, I may go a different uh, route. And so that's an incredible tool and a tool that all AUSAs were very protective of, of that grand jury. And we were very careful on how we use it. But that's one of the best tools. That's really interesting. One other thing I wanted to ask about, how important is it for police and prosecutors to regularly share intelligence in like a violent crime meeting or some places have shoot review team meetings, things like that? Um, let's start with Lamar. I think it's very important. A lot of people do this in various different ways. When I was at the city of Columbia, they had a crime gun intelligence unit. And I've heard um, that term used in some state or form, a crime gun unit, a gun intelligence unit in various jurisdictions all throughout the country. And they have regular meetings talking about gun crimes in their area, who's connected to those crimes, what they're seeing on the patrol side, uh, what they're seeing on the gang side as far as gang intelligence. And you get a different viewpoint of the amount of crime that's really being perpetuated in one jurisdiction. And the more people you have at those meetings, probation agents are great people to have at those meetings, members from the gang unit, members from the narcotics unit, just sharing intelligence. And you put some evidence up on the slideshow or the PowerPoint that they're running that day. And you can start conversations about different people and their interactions with the individual that's being investigated or interactions with individuals that they know are associated with the individual that's being investigated. So you can come up with a better investigation as a result of those meetings. You can also come up with individuals that need to be investigated or should be targeted on my side for federal prosecution or should be prioritized on the state side for state prosecution. prosecution. So those regular meetings are very important and they've been very fruitful, the ones that I've attended. Rob, any thoughts on that? You know, our data shows us that there's been a dramatic increase in youth, 15, 16, 17 years old, involved in shootings. And we still see those 18 and 19 and 20 year olds dominating where people are getting hit. So we may be investigating uh, or at a gun screening and talking about a guy, and he may be just a barely a felon. You know, he's got a PWI, a possession with intent to sell and deliver marijuana or cocaine or a, a car, motor vehicle breaking and entering. And we're like, that's not a case we're really interested in. It's not a case that the state's going to prioritize. He really done that bad record. Well, the police say, well, the gun he was caught with was involved in a, in a shooting. We, this technology has shown us that we don't know whether it was him, but the gun was involved in a shooting a month and a half ago. And then our investigation revealed when we went to the hospital, because he got shot in the return fire, he told his girlfriend who did it. But when we tried to interview him, he didn't do it. And so we know somebody was involved in a shoot 
but there was no charges because we don't have the evidence. But we have another independent information showing he's, you know, he's got a current charge. And so that information that's exchanged brings that person from somebody we'd not even look at to the highest priority because he's in a group, he's gang, he's a leader, he's a shot caller. This was a retaliation. And even though there's not a charge to it, we're getting good, solid information that it's informing our decision. So we make the best decision about how we're going to use our limited resources, you know, in the further investigation and our technology follow up and our DNA and our forensic work and our prosecution that follows up. So really, really, really important to get that. Same thing with probation. That kind of intel that sometimes the raw charge doesn't show you when you're just reviewing a report and you have a beat officer that seizes the gun. He doesn't know. Very important to have that information from multiple sets. Uh, and then the last is other prosecutors may know. They may have had a witness before. He may have been uh, involved in another case and they had insight, knew the family, know what's going on, sort of know the dynamics, what's going on. So all that information, really putting it in a bag and shaking it up and coming out with your high priorities in both prosecutorial systems. Thank you both for talking about the the role of intelligence and how you're sharing that information. I'd like to talk a little bit more about one aspect of intelligence that we haven't talked about yet, and that's the role of the National Integrated Ballistic Information Network, NIBIN. I'll start with you, Lamar. Can you talk a little bit about the role of NIBIN in these sorts of fatal and non-fatal shooting investigations? Yes. So NIBIN, for those that may not know, is sort of a computerized program that takes a very enhanced picture of the back of a shell casing left at a shooting scene or from a gun that's recovered and puts it into a system and it runs that uh, picture continuously through that system and it can find where that gun fired another shell casing at another shooting scene. And that can be invaluable. And when Rob was talking earlier about people that are contributing to violence, Niven is a great tool for that. And so you get someone that's found with a gun at a traffic stop and law enforcement takes that gun, they test fire it, and they put that shell casing in the Niven and they can show that that gun was used in the shooting three weeks ago, sometimes a few days before that traffic stop. That is a very good indication that that person is involved in some violent crime in the community. So Niven is not an end-all, be-all. It doesn't necessarily say, hey, that person fired the gun. But that's a very good lead and it gives law enforcement and investigators an avenue to go down. And it's a very big signal to us as prosecutors that that's a case that we should be interested in because we're involved as in minimizing violence in the community. And you pair sort of Niven leads with the intelligence that you get at these intelligence meetings, that could really lead us in the direction we want to go as far as, as far as investigating people and deciding who we decide to prosecute. Like he said, we have limited resources in the federal system. And if our goal is to reduce violence, we have to use those resources very efficiently and very effectively. And so someone in possession of guns that have been used in shootings is very, very good intelligence. And not only that, you can take it further and say, let's say the person with the gun was driving a blue Chevy Camaro, for instance. And you go back and look at the investigation into the shooting that had taken place where the Niven League came back to. And it turns out witnesses say someone in a Chevy Camaro was shooting and left those shell casings. And that's an even bigger indicator like, hey, we're on to the right track. And this is the person that we should be interested in. So Niven is very good at sort of narrowing down on time and place and location where a specific gun was used. And combining that with other evidence from that crime scene, it could be very eye-opening. 
Yeah, I'm hearing that it's not the only way to use intelligence. It's just another piece of the puzzle. Rob, how have you used Niven in your investigations or prosecutions? Excuse me. Everything that Lamar just said, you know, narrowing down, indicator, a pointer, it's a lead. But what I see that Niven's very effective in is in, in a multiple shooting, when you have a retaliation system, you know, you may have a weekend in an urban area where there's 11 shootings and all of a sudden by Tuesday, they put all those fired shell casings that have been seized at those, you know, six or seven or 10 different crime scenes. And they've got the entire criminal investigations division called out. They think they're involved in investigating 10 different shoots. And it's really two groups shooting back and forth at each other at 10 different locations. It can narrow the investigation to understand what's going on out there. What we also see is when you have a Niven lead, you know, a lot of times they are from drive-bys and a lot of time there isn't doorbell video. And a lot of times that the people that they're shooting at don't want to cooperate with the police because they want to shoot back. But if you have the Niven leads, all of a sudden one of them does have that blue Camaro on a doorbell. We are able to get a tag off of it. We are able to develop a strong suspect. And because that same gun has been involved in five, six, seven other retaliation shootings, we know they're in a war right now. We can put all of our focus on solving the one that we have good evidence on and run that one down because we know stopping that guy from doing the next shooting is not only going to stop him, and prevent him from shooting again, it's going to stop the people he's shooting at from shooting back. So it's an extremely effective tool when you're in a group gang dynamic, especially in this youthful social media stuff, the back and forth. And, you know, that's why, unfortunately, some of the rural areas, they dump in once a month. It doesn't help them that much. It's better than ballistics, you know, that takes 18 months to come back. The actual, you know, expert opinion that this shell casing was fired from this gun or these two shell casings from different scenes were fired from the very same gun. In our urban areas, they understand the power of it. And so, you know, they're getting those in, they're getting the reports back uh, in a very timely fashion. And so we're called. In those instances, we may do a federal complaint and immediately arrest. He may have been arrested in the state and he may have his game on and get out on bond and we'll do a complaint and detain him so that we stop that retaliation to try to stop that back and forth. And so, it's an incredibly powerful tool. We're also using it in search warrants uh, as probable cause. We're also using it at detention hearings as to whether somebody should be allowed to remain out pending their trial. We're also using it at sentencing hearings because those are all different burdens. They're not beyond a reasonable doubt because we, nobody's used it yet in trial that I'm aware of. We have to use the ballistics expert to get that in to meet the standards under Daubert, which is the that allows expert testimony in. There still has to be that good, hard, uh, on-the-ground, boots-to-the-ground investigative work to make a case uh, stronger. Also, the tracing, finding the last point of retail sale of a firearm, that in combination with Niven, you know, you got a bunch of Niven hits and you find some guns. All of a sudden, you get a trace on that gun and you find and you run that guy's name and you find out he's bought 80 guns, 80 guns in the last 18 months. And all of a sudden, we start running all the guns he's bought, and we find out 18 of them have been recovered at crime scenes. And we got a we got a straw purchaser, gun trafficker that's selling guns bought from licensed federal firearms licensees. They're not violating any laws. He's not prohibited, but he's taking those and putting them to a prohibited user that's using them in a shoot. So we also can work our source of supply cases. Uh, one thing I'd like to add is NIDM can also be preventative. The local law enforcement here in Columbia and Richmond County, they found after Niven and sort of backtracing where the guns came from, 
that a lot of the guns being used in shootings were left in people's unlocked cars and stolen. And so they used that information to push out sort of a social media and a big public campaign, lock your doors at night. You know, before you go to sleep, make sure your doors are locked because we have a lot of individuals engaged in violence here in Colombia that are literally walking into crowded parking lots at hotels or restaurants or just walking down neighborhood streets, pulling on door handles, seeing if a door is open and stealing whatever firearm they could find. So that, that was a big use of knives and a sort of backtracing and saying, hey, we found this gun linked to this shooting. Who purchased the gun? And then we found out that gun was stolen from somebody's car that was left open. And so it would allow law enforcement to do some preventative work as well. You know, one of the goals of the National Case Closed Project is to help agencies, especially with these non-fatal shooting cases. And what we've heard from a lot of law enforcement agencies is that cities across the country are struggling with non-fatal shootings. Victims or witnesses don't want to come forward. They don't want to participate in investigations or, you know, to be a, a witness to testify which presents this dead end for investigators. And you all have touched on some different strategies that you can use to kind of circumnavigate this. But are there any other strategies that you employ in these sorts of tough cases? One that worked out for me, I prosecuted a murder, attempted murder involving a drug deal gone bad. And the individual that was shot in that attempted murder case was our sole eyewitness. So he was the victim of attempted murder. And he witnessed someone get gunned down in his home. He did not want to cooperate. But in looking at the case, I at least thought that the forensic evidence that was there, the DNA, the shell casings, the way the crime scene was laid out, I didn't really need him to be sort of a saint in front of the jury. I just I just needed the jury to know that what he was saying was true because it was backed up by the evidence. And so I just took a flyer at him because he was just going to get in the, on the stand and not say anything, according to him. I said, OK. I will tell the jury that you're here because we gave you a subpoena and otherwise you don't want to be there. I'll say that in front of the jury and in front of the defendant. And that worked, right? Because he just didn't want to be labeled, you know, quote unquote snitch, right? He wanted everybody to know that he was there by force or coercion of the government. And that was fine with me because I thought his testimony was that valuable. Now, that may or may not have made him less credible to the jury to some degree, but given the other evidence that I had, you know, I had body cam of the officer arriving on scene and seeing him being shot in the arm and giving CPR to the deceased victim. I thought it was worth it in that case. And so I think you have to sort of meet people where they are from a neighborhood standpoint, a cultural standpoint. People are afraid of retaliation, even though, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, it's really not that common, but people are afraid of it. And I think they're afraid of being known as, you know, someone who talked to the cops or cooperated or said something about someone. So I think you said have to meet people where they are, let them know that you're there to protect them. And that goes also back to community building with law enforcement prosecutors in the community, establishing that relationship early on. So they don't think you're just there to have them testify uh, and then forget about them. I agree with that. I mean, and where we are situated, you know, in North and South Carolina, I've had a few witnesses intimidated. I've never had anybody killed. I've never had anybody shot. And I've done thousands and thousands and thousands of cases now. There is no doubt that the MS-13 has witness elimination, and that's part of their credo. 
There's no doubt that the Latin Kings, if you if you cooperate with law enforcement, there's a green light put out on you and all those kind of things. And those may be true and those may happen in, in L.A. and Chicago and Houston and up in the Northeast. But I haven't seen that as much around here. And it's interesting. A lot of the witnesses that we get are developed by our officers, obviously. And those officers developed the witnesses when they were young patrol officers by treating people right in the community and by treating them fairly and being straightforward with them and getting some trust and some legitimacy with them. And then that's how they solve a lot of things because those people will call that officer once he gets promoted to be a detective and provide this information to him. And they have a relationship and are able to get them to come forward. But the thing that we use mostly in the non-fatal situation is we run after the gun. And if we know that gun through knife and through ballistics has been involved in this shooting, we try to follow and look for the suspect and try to catch him with the gun. And we don't need that victim often. If we do our, our dot our I's and cross our T's and do document the positioning of the gun, the things that we talked about earlier, we can prove his possession of that gun. And right now, after August of, of 2022, with the date of offense, you know, that's a 15-year lick just for a garden variety felon in possession of a firearm. If they have dope and it's in possessing a firearm in connection with a drug trafficking offense or a crime of violence, which would be a robbery or a shooting or a drug robbery, that's punishable by up to life. And so you can cross-reference that shooting and try a little mini murder trial or a shooting trial at sentencing at a lesser threshold at a preponderance, 51%, as opposed to beyond the reasonable doubt that you got to prove to the jury for the possession of the firearm. So it's about understanding that you can run after the gun. The gun is a crime scene. There's pieces of the gun and the way the gun's possessed, where it's possessed, who's present, all those type of forensic follow-up that can show us, you know, making sure the guy's GSR if, if there's a shots fired call, all those things, gunshot residue tests, you know, all those kind of processes that are in place to run after the gun and, and to understand when it's important to run after the gun. And, you know, in a jurisdiction like Durham, you know, they're going to seize a couple thousand guns a year. We can't ask them to run six times a day and run the case all the way down. But we can on these high value violent impact players and these places that our Niven leads are showing us are high value players and that our algorithm shows have a lot of contact with guns and they're involved in retaliation shooting and such. We can focus on them and run them down and, and use our specialized gun units to work that. So that can really help. But developing the relationships like, like Omar talked about, if I have a non-fatal and I got a person that's the only person that can do it. I probably meet with them 15 times before the trial. I got to have this person trust me that we're not going to throw them underneath the bus. You know, non-fatals are tough. They've always have been. You're finding ways to go forward. Uh, you're taking the facts of your case and you're figuring out how, how do we get there or what can we get? Because it may not be the shooting. Um, it sounds like you're going to find a way to hold someone accountable for something if you think they're the violent perpetrator that they are. I just think what you guys are talking about is fascinating. What about community engagement? Is, is that important in uh, combating this gun violence? And if it is important, do prosecutors even have a role in community engagement? I don't know, Rob, you want to start with this one? Community engagement's essential. Working with reentry didn't take very long. The highest recidivist numbers are coming from violent crime offenders, the greatest characteristic of an armed robber is that he's robbed before. So working with people coming back from prison, especially those guys that have done a three or four or five year bit that are 25, 26, 27, 
that have decided while they're inside that this is not who I am. Those guys will often want to change. And if we can develop resources and uh, uh, interventions to help them and assist them, they won't go back to the corner. They'll move right on. And, you know, the role of uh, prevention and intervention and reentry at the adult and the juvenile level is absolutely one of the best crime reduction models that you can work with. So working the high impact players, the guys that Niven leads, the shot callers, the people that always have a gun, all that kind of thing, that's really important. You got to do that. But where are the emerging offenders? You know, where are the where's the next man up? Where's the next person that's going to take over the drug organization that utilizes violence to further its criminal activity? And you predict that and you try to intervene on those folks. Where are the children of the violent offenders that we're putting around? You know, they have a high incidence, one out of two of somebody who goes to federal prison, their children are going to go. It's about a 48% recidivism rate. Where can you work to prevent the next round? The data is out there to show us where we can most effectively and efficiently direct resources, the right kind of resources, um, and meeting people where they are, as Lamar said earlier. And to do that. So prevention, intervention, reentry, all that stuff is critical. We've got to be involved in that because we've got to show the police that those methods are just as important as having a really good experienced homicide investigator or a violent crime investigator. And in all my trainings, I, when I do talk to police at rookie school, I talk about it's not who you police, it's how you police. How you police is more important than who you police. Because we know from picking juries, Lamar and John, that somebody who got pulled over for that trooper 10 years ago and had a bad experience, when I was in the state, I'm looking for that guy because I don't want him on the jury because he's still mad about the way he was treated or embarrassed in front of his family members. And so that model of retraining the police to understand the power that they have in their contacts with the community is so, so important. And by the prosecutors being involved in that, it makes us better. It makes us understand the community better. Lamar, how about community engagement uh, on your end? I think it's critical. One thing that I've always valued is talking to kids, especially kids from what we call you know, at-risk communities, communities with you know a high poverty rate, high school dropout rate. I actually value those communities a lot because in my younger years, I grew up in those communities. And what Rob said is important. Our number one goal is prevention, right? Our, our number one goal as prosecutors is not to have a bunch of crime and put a bunch of people in prison. It's to do what we can do to prevent crime. And there's really two sort of major ways we can do that as prosecutors. One is from the community angle is to go into at-risk communities, not just sort of fearingly. You know, we have these initiatives. We go talk to kids in school about, you know, gun violence and gun violence prevention and gang violence and how those things can affect your lives sort of on a larger scale, but also just sort of following up in an individual or smaller group setting with community groups, neighborhood groups, community leaders, just letting them know that we're here if you need us to come and talk to any group of kids at any time and mentor, then we can be that resource. The other angle we have is sort of prevention through the you know, rapid rate in which we address issues. So one of the things that has found to be a good deterrent is for someone to commit you know, a gun crime and then get arrested and prosecuted quickly. And that's one of the tools we have in the federal system. As a federal prosecutor, we're trying to deal with gun violence and people perpetuating gun violence. 
we can have a crime committed and then a resolution, either trial, guilty plea, or some kind of verdict, sometimes it's six to nine months, right? And so that sends a message to the community and people that would be perpetuators of violent crime or drug crime or gun violence that, you know, we're taking that seriously. The person did something. And then before the calendar year is out, that case is resolved. And so, you know, I think we have to attack it from all angles in our capacity as prosecutors and law enforcement generally to try to reduce the amount of people that are committing crime generally or that are going to go back into a life of crime, I should say. Yeah. No, this is fascinating, guys. As I'm listening, just the role of the prosecutor is not the guy standing in court trying the case anymore. That's part of it. But you're doing so many other things. It's just fascinating uh, what you're doing. Yes. Thank you, Bo. Thank you, all three of you. It's been a real pleasure to get to learn. I feel like I've learned so much about what it's like to try these cases. And 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 to your point, John, it, you're not just standing in a courtroom at the end being handed a fully fledged case to try. You're really an integral part of this investigation. And it really speaks to how important it is to form relationships with these local law enforcement agencies and communities as well. I just want to thank you guys for, for having me. This was a great discussion. Rob, it's good to see you again. Yeah, absolutely, man. I appreciate being part of all this. And it's a great, great concept. So if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensics field, please visit the National Case Closed Project. And we have a website. It is nationalcaseclosed.org. I'm Julia Brenton. And I'm Jam Wilkinson. And this has been another episode of Just Science. Next week, Just Science sits down with Michael McKissick and Pastor Roderick Burton to discuss strategies for strengthening police community partnerships and community trust with local law enforcement agencies to address gun violence. This project is supported by grant number 15PBJA-21-GK-04008-JA-2022-0001. Dash 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 awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is a component of the U.S. Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, which also includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the National Institute of Justice, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office for Victims of Crime, and the Office of Sex Offender Sentencing, Monitoring, Apprehending, Registering, and Tracking. Points of use or opinions in this document are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. 